Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You know, we didn't plan it this way, although I should never admit that because we do this all the time subconsciously. But, you know, the three middle shows of this week are very much of a piece in a way. Yesterday's show was a conversation positing that democracy was somehow broken and then having people discuss how it could be fixed. Tomorrow's show is a full show conversation with Kurt Anderson about why public life feels so insane at this moment. And here in the middle, we're going to be talking about why it is that when natural disasters happen, although they can be looked at uh, in stark scientific terms, we don't always do that, right? I mean, I don't always do it. I was saying before, I was standing outside the other night, you know, I think it was sort of around the time of the really bad Mexican earthquake, but the hurricanes were happening too, and the wildfires hadn't started yet. And I said out loud in the darkness, the world is tearing apart right now, which is not true, but it's the way that it feels. And then when it feels that way, then we start projecting um, those thoughts onto another set of very familiar matrices that are very much embedded in our collective understanding of the world. We're going to talk about all that today. We've got a great guest to do it. I'm going to tell you in the final segment, we'll be talking to the novelist Liz Jensen, uh, who's joining us from Copenhagen. I say is joining us. She and actually, because of the time difference, I had the conversation with her a few hours ago. Uh, she's going to talk about the way that happens when people start creating fiction, fiction in the subgenre in particular known as cli-fi, um, the, the climate version of science fiction. But we're going to stay out of fiction for a while, uh, and we're going to talk to Henry Fountain, uh, who writes about science and climate change for The New York Times. He's the author of The Great Quake, How the Biggest Earthquake in North America Changed Our Understanding of the Planet. Also with Christiana Zenner-Peppard, uh, Associate Professor of Theology, si- Science, and Ethics at Fordham. She's the author of Just Water, Theology, Ethics, and the Global Water Crisis. So, Henry, let's just start with those kinds of concatenations that we have periodically and have had a lot here over the last eight weeks or so. Uh, We can look at a whole bunch of hurricanes. Uh, We can look at um, earthquakes. Uh, We can look at wildfires. Uh, And it's pretty easy to start smushing all of those together into a collective sensibility. But what's the no-drama way of thinking about hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires? Let's start with earthquakes, as you know a lot about them. It might feel to me like, oh, wow, we just had this really significant earthquake, or I just heard about two earthquakes. You know, we're in a lot of trouble. What's the reality of earthquakes? Uh, The reality is earthquakes happen all the time. Um, Big earthquakes like the second one in Mexico City don't happen all the time. One of that size happens about once a year, but pretty much every year there's one 8.0 magnitude or higher earthquake somewhere around the world. There's a greater number of 7.0 magnitude or higher, a far greater number of 6 and 5 and down the line. Those numbers really don't change over the years. They're, they're remarkably uh, consistent uh, on average. In this case, you had two pretty large earthquakes, one very large earthquake, the Mexico City one, uh, the second one, which I think was 8.2, and you had one a couple of weeks before not that far away, which was a 7-something. That's a little unusual, but 
you know, Mexico gets a lot of earthquakes. It's very active, like much of the Pacific Rim. It's a very active zone seismically. So, you know, it, it's not um, it's not really that out of the ordinary. Okay, let's do hurricanes. Hurricanes. Uh, hurricanes happen every year uh, between June 1st and uh, November 30th, roughly. Uh, July or August, September, October are generally the active season or the active part of the season when you get most of the hurricanes. And the reason for that is pretty simple, which is that the water in the tropical uh, Atlantic gets very warm and warmth, warm water really is the fuel by which hurricanes happen. Um, it was it was predicted by people, you know, uh, climatologists, forecasters uh, with the with the government that this would be a particularly active season, and that the active part of the season would be even more active, and that's exactly what happened. And that's really because water temperatures were were very high. There were some other conditions. Um, I don't think anybody really thought there'd be four. I think was it four. Uh, you know, major Category 3-plus hurricanes that made landfall all within the space of maybe five or six weeks. That's a little unusual, but not totally unexpected given the conditions. Right. And, I mean, there is such a thing as climate change, and we know that. And 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 now you've got a hurricane coming to Ireland. Ireland has a lot of cold water typically, so that's a little freaky too. And then the wildfires, right. I mean, we don't have to work through the whole thing, and there was a pretty good analysis of this, I think, on here and now yesterday. But, you know, climate change probably plays some role, but not all uh, roles in climate change. But then we also we have the winds uh, in California, which fan those flames, and maybe we've got kind of a perfect storm, so to speak, with uh, with the conditions that created these wildfires. But Henry, one of the things that human beings do is look for patterns, right? It's one of the things that makes us, it makes it made us a, a successful species originally that we had a little bit of that instinct to look for patterns because ultimately you can be a little bit more crudely pr predictive of your environment. If you're a hominid on the grasslands of Africa, if you can say, oh yeah, the last four times that thing happened, this other thing happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, everybody does it. I mean, you know, um, I work at the New York Times and my editors, you know, when these hurricanes all started happening, they were like, what's going on? You know, everybody, everybody has a, you know, even, even the most sort of logical scientist has a moment of doubt, I'm sure, like, what, what's going on? Um, so uh, it's, it's kind of natural to think, think that. I mean, uh, you know, on another level, uh, you know, hurricanes and earthquakes are totally unrelated, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's no, like hurricanes don't cause earthquakes and vice versa. Uh, hurricanes don't cause wildfires. So, so you know, the patterns are within the type of phenomena themselves, but not among, you know, the fact that we've had two major earthquakes and four major hurricane, hurricanes and a season of really bad wildfires, those three elements are not really connected. All right. So, Christiana, if we could see that pattern recognition and that instinct goes back tens and tens and tens of thousands of years, a little bit more recently, we started to have this other matrix through which to see things. And, and who knows what the first eschatological religion was. But certainly the early Christians, Paul, thinks the world's going to end any minute. Um, it's one of the reasons that he thinks a lot of the other things that he thinks is because he thinks the world is going to end. So you could say that this is a little bit baked into theology. It wasn't something that Pat Robertson thought of 25 years ago, right? It was not something that Pat Robinson thought of 25 years ago. That is, that is true. And it is something that is deeply embedded in Christian structures of understanding the world. So it's not an accident, therefore, that, that various evangelical and uh, fundamentalist-type interpreters of the Bible are inclined to see 
in these kinds of events a confirmation of the pattern that they're looking for, right? We call that a confirmation bias in a variety of scholarly disciplines. But humans, in addition to being wired to look for patterns, we're also, in a sense, wired or inclined in some way to, to put ourselves in the narratives by which we orient our lives. And so for a lot of the Western world, certainly for the United States, which has been a predominantly Christian country in, in some unique and consequential ways, the idea of apocalypse, the idea of end times, and the idea that there will be extreme and uncanny weather events is really part of the fabric of storytelling and, and narrating ourselves as Christian, ourselves broadly, broadly understood in U.S. history. Right. So before we even get to the way that maybe you could start fitting together a bunch of earthquakes and wildfires and hurricanes uh, into an end time scenario, we can also say that a lot of uh, television Christian pundits and stuff these days, um, they just draw a connection between like hurricane and gay marriage or something. So uh, let's hear what that sounds like. Katrina was much more fun for these people because uh, they thought New Orleans was Gomorrah anyway, uh, whereas with Texas, it's a little bit harder to be uh, raining hellfire down on them. But let's. Uh, this is a, a panelist. I forget this guy's name. He's really uh, associated with this kind of rhetoric. He's, I believe he's on the um, evergreen Jim Baker show. I think the wake-up calls Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Katrina meant means to cleanse, one of the roots of that word, to cleanse. Well, it hits uh, the uh, Key West. The very day they're going to have the Day of Decadence Mm -hmm. celebration. It was a little storm then, a smaller storm. hits on that day. Then it hits New Orleans on the day when they're playing. Theirs is a much bigger storm. And, And then when I went to New Orleans, I met with a bunch of pastors right after the Katrina. Thing and they, one of them asked me, "Do you think we're under judgment? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Do you have to ask?" And they were so offended that I would say yes. Wow. Yeah. Because it's not politically correct. Yeah. Imagine them being offended. <laughs> All right. So, um, so you've got that, um, Christiana. You've got that kind of argument, um, and it's not difficult to go from there to. Well, I mean, if one th- if one storm is a judgment about one thing, then a conflagration of various kinds of disasters really kind of starts adding up to, to some other kind of judgment. You know, I think that's part of it. I, I think that there is also a long history within the Hebrew Bible, that is what Christians know as the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, of uh, the authors of those texts describing weather patterns and unusual events and unexpected terrifying happenings as being manifestations of godly power. So like I said earlier, there, you know, those of us who may have grown up in those kinds of narratives are inclined to view the causality as coming from a supernatural source. Um, when they all start happening on top of one another, you know, I think that's what seems so uncanny to so many people. And I know in the story that Henry wrote in the Times, that was part of the impetus of, you know, a lot of, as, as you just said, Henry, a lot of highly rational people in the New York Times newsroom are still thinking, what on earth is going on? Is everything just completely messed up? Is the world so angry at us? Or are the gods, singular or plural, so angry at us? Um, I think that one of the things I'm constantly aware of in the work that I do looking at environmental ethics and water and uh, religious understandings of, of climate science and water is that 
American responses are very conditioned by these kind of biblical narratives and the desire to see a, a divine causality. But they're also very conditioned by a kind of myopia, looking really only at the events that are happening right here at our front doors or, you know, the continental U.S., or maybe a little bit some uh, territories or islands nearby. But it, 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 to affirm Henry's point, these sorts of things happen frequently, seasonally. And while we can't necessarily predict when all of them are going to happen and with what significance, there are nonetheless explanations that are that are non-supernatural, right, that are naturalistic, that are material. Um, so I, I think there's a, a really interesting dynamic among the kinds of science that can be predictive, or at least we expect certain frequencies, as well as what we humans are willing to pay attention to. Well, I mean, I think, Henry, though, uh, another part of that is our front porch or our backyard or wh whatever we're looking at has gotten a lot bigger. So when, when Whitfield was giving sermons during the Great Awakening, there could have been a massive earthquake in southern Alaska. He wouldn't have known about that. That, you know, Christiana is right that we pretty much look at things that affect America in a way that we think look very differently at, at things that happen abroad. But the reality is there's a whole industry now of, of people on digital cable news telling us all the time what's going wrong. Oh, that's such a great right. point. I mean, I think I'll, I'll just say this really quickly. And then, Henry, since you work in this realm, I'm so keen to hear what you have to say. Um, but I think about this a lot with my students. And th the question of the 24-hour news cycle the fact that with the tap of your fingers, if you have a digital device, you can access all sorts of information from all around the world, and the ways in which different news venues are trying to get clicks or views by putting uh, a story or a natural event in stark and alluring terms is, is a real thing to contend with in terms of um, communication and, and the prevalence of certain theories about why these things are happening and what they might mean. Yeah, go ahead, Henry. Well, you know, um, earthquakes, uh, as an example, you know, as I said, there, there, uh, there's a lot of earthquakes. Most of them happen, most of even the big, the bigger ones happen in places where there aren't anybody or there's very few people or there's not very good communication. Uh, and that's been going on for a lot longer than we've had social media. Um, so there's always been this uh, sort of, it's almost not really the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but the populated area is the one that calls attention to the event. And, and there's a lot of events that happen that nobody even thinks about. So, uh, so we've always been sort of biased to, uh, to what afflicts us, I guess, is the best way to put it. Right. And, but Henry, let's go back to our, our uh, putative um, hominid on the grasslands of Africa. So he's there saying, you know what, the last time it rained for 10 days, all the berries died, you know, and we didn't have any berries. So it looks like that's going to happen again. So let's pick a lot of berries so we don't lose them all. And that's actually sort of an adaptive thing. He started to pick up on a, on a pattern. He or she has started to pick up on a pattern. Maybe they get it wrong sometimes. Last time there was an eclipse like this one and the sun went dark, you know, all all the, I don't know, all the deer ran away or something. Let's catch some more deer. Uh, and so they might get that one wrong. But it seems to me now we're at the opposite end of that continuum. We're overloaded with information all the time, Henry, about we this are. stuff. And, and, we are. and that may be why we're like coming up with weird pattern recognition. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, couple that with people's desire for some kind of explanation. And so they see, and, you know, you see this on Twitter. I mean, I've been you know, uh, just ever since these hurricanes started happening, 
people say, well, you know, one's one thing, but two or three or four. I mean, it's climate change. It's got to be climate change. And, you know, the whole question of hurricanes and climate change is very, very difficult to sort of parse out. But um, there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction. Well, if it's if it's happened a couple of times, it's got to be – there's got to be some greater significance to it. And they look for the, the – um, sort of the easiest explanation. You know, uh, so this book I wrote, it's about this earthquake that happened in 1964 in Alaska, a really huge earthquake. And that was the height of the Cold War. And when that happened, everybody in Alaska who experienced it, their initial thought was, oh, Russia's dropped, a, Soviet Union's dropped an atomic bomb on the state and World War III's broken out. So it's kind of like the reaction is part of the context of the times. And climate change, you know, rightly so, is on people's minds now. And so when things stack up like this, that's the that's the almost it's almost a knee jerk reaction in some ways. So, Cristiano, we, we could do like a three hour show on all the various typologies and taxonomies of millennialism and, and apocalyptic thinking. It's all over the map in terms of what they um, conclude is happening or what order their things are going to happen, how they interpret Revelations twenty, but. One thing that we can say is that for a lot of people who are saturated in and marinating in eschatological thinking, when they see this stuff happen, it's a little scary, but it's also not entirely bad news. It kind of depends on where you think you are in that millennial <laughs> cycle. But right. I mean, you may say a little bit more about this, why this it might be good, actually, that things are uh, are so extreme right now. Yes. Well, okay. Let me let me just make one point of clarification. Uh, millennials, in the sense you're referring to, refers to a particular kind of religious belief about the end times. Right. But that's not to be confused with the kinds of millennials who, you know, ages roughly 23 to 35, who also have a, a perhaps different kinds of stance towards matters of climate change and whatnot. Um, right. So, they're, they're just cannon fodder in the other kind of millennials. <laughs> yes, sometimes that's true. Um, so, okay. So, why might the news of hurricane upon hurricane as a potential harbinger of the end times be good news for religious millennials uh, who are apocalyptic in their viewpoints? And, uh, well, it's simple. It's, it's because that means that the ultimate judgment, the final judgment is coming, and that those who are saved and worthy will be redeemed and will experience eternal life and those who will not are, you know, that's going to be it. So it, it really is the second coming. It is the new world that many Christians have been waiting for. And uh, it's, it's a, obviously a very particular subgroup of Christians who wants to interpret certain natural events in this way. But it is also because it is apocalyptic in nature with a hoped for better world that's coming. Uh, one of the difficulties or problems with it, in my view, is that it can also absolve humans of responsibility for thinking about what's going on in the here and now, certainly in reference to hurricane relief and so forth, but also in reference to how human societies contribute to the causes or the amplifications of some of those storms or those dynamics. All right. So we can't promise you a better world, but we can promise you another segment. We're going to take a break. We'll come back uh, and we'll talk to these guests some more about this. All right. We're back. We're talking about the question of why and how it is, how, well, sort of how we process 
cataclysmic events, particularly when we've got a lot of them in front of us. Um, and to do that, um, we are talking right now to Christiana Zenner Peppard, uh, Associate Professor of Theology, Science, and Ethics at Fordham University. She's the author of Just Water, Theology, Ethics, and the Global Water Crisis. Um, also with us is Henry Fountain. Uh, he writes about science and climate change for The New York Times. He's the author of The Great Quake. Uh, how the biggest earthquake in North America changed our understanding of the planet. Um, so, well, actually, since we just said those uh, two titles, especially Christiana, uh, Christiana's title, Henry, I'm going to start this question off with you. So it's, um, I think uh, the, the uh, James Baldwin book, Fire Next Time, I believe, comes from the story of Noah. That, uh, God says it's going to be the fire next time. But the reality probably is, if you wanted to think about the probable course of cataclysm, uh, that it'll be water again. It'll, it may not be Noah, uh, but it, that water will probably play a bigger role in our collective destinies than fire. Say why that would be. Well, uh, uh, primarily because with climate change, uh, the water's rising, right? The, um, the uh, water's heating up, getting bigger, expanding, rising because of that, and also because of things like melting ice caps. So we are facing, um, you know, over the course of the next few centuries, we're facing quite a significant amount of sea level rise, even if we were to really rein in our carbon emissions. Um, and that, you know, has a, um, obviously, just the sort of inexorable rise will have an effect on millions and millions, millions and millions of people in coastal communities around the world. But even more immediately, it has an impact with things like hurricanes, because uh, when you have a storm surge with a hurricane, if it's, uh, you know, if a 10-foot storm surge, uh, if it's coming in on seas that are half a foot higher than they were 20 years before, it's going to cause more damage. So, um so, yeah, I think you're right. It is water. And one of the things I learned um, writing about earthquakes and tsunamis and also about hurricanes is that, uh, you know, water, I mean, you know, these wildfires have been spectacular and very destructive and horrific, but water really does an amazing amount of damage. And you don't really think of it, but it's, um, it's a very, very damaging thing. Um, Christiana, uh, I know you have similar observations, but you want to elaborate uh, on what Henry is saying? Sure. I have one point about water understood as ocean or saline water, and uh, I was actually just thinking about two major earthquakes that were pretty consequential and freaky to the inhabitants of the regions when they happened. One was the um, 1755 Lisbon earthquake, and the other was the 1835 earthquake in Concepcion, Chile, which led to a series of tsunamis that Darwin documented in 1835 when he was on the voyage of the Beagle. And he very much says, you know, so much of, Henry, what you just noted, that the um, while there are devastating impacts and buildings collapsed due to the earthquake, it was the tsunamis that just absolutely wiped out so many different forms of life and um, the, the conditions for those. So all, all of those aspects of climate change and extreme weather events in, in the ways that there are both strong and tenuous connections between those two things are real. In my work, I have tended to focus more on freshwater, and I think there is, is where we really see water as a key site or a key vector through which climate change and some truly apocalyptic or cataclysmic outcomes can be seen. There's a quote I like from the former director of Biosphere 2. His name is Travis Huxman, now a professor in Southern California. He says, water is the hammer with which climate change will hit the earth. And similarly, the former head of the United Nations Water Program, Zafar Adil, 
says climate change is all about water. This is for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, water vapor is a really potent greenhouse gas. It's a natural one. Uh, it's not one that is amplified by fossil fuel uh, extraction and consumption. But it is nonetheless a factor that as climate change increases and, and the temperature and, uh, increases and water vapor patterns change throughout the globe, dry places will get drier and wet places will get wetter, which means that there will be more deluge, more monsoons in places already prone to that, and there will be more drought in places already prone to that, which will lead to various kinds of climate refugee situations. So the, the ways in which freshwater intersects with agriculture, with flood storms and coastal inundation, all of these things are linked by this um, single molecule of water, but it is also robustly multiple and in some of its effects nefarious on human life. So, Christiana, I want to stay with you for a second and say um, that there's also a, a movement of, I don't know, I, I, don't, I hate to sort of qualified by saying responsible Christian eschatology, <laughs> uh, suggesting that there's irresponsible, but maybe there is. And so you have people like theologian Catherine Keller who talk about, the, talk about the green apocalypse and that modern eschatology means teaching about working on environmentalism. In other words, if we're facing uh, an apocalypse and an apocalypse that we had something to do with, and obviously you can uh, throw our current pope uh, into that mix too, that, that rather than just sort of watching things <laughs> unfold a la the book of Revelations, there's things we're supposed to do. Absolutely. And that really, I'm so glad you brought that up because it points to some fundamental tensions among different denominations of Christianity. And, and perhaps the fault line there, uh, pun both intended and not intended, has to do with whether the ultimate value or ultimate reality is in the thereafter, the heavenly realm, or somehow linked between these two realms, that our bodies, this created world is in some sense good, and, and we have responsibility for it. And that's a really strong strain that I would argue uh, numerically, in terms of American Christianity at least, is as significant, if not more significant, than the more vocal uh, millennial kind of minority that says, oh, screw it all, or as um, I think it was James Watt who said during the Reagan administration that, well, cut all the trees down because they'll be gone when the apocalypse comes anyway. Right. And, uh, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so what I'm actually uh, an expert on in terms of Christian environmentalism is the Catholic Church's turn to matters environmental. Mm -hmm. And this has happened for a couple of reasons. One is that there has been a, a recognition in Catholic Christianity from the highest offices, from the Pope, that if it is held as a matter of belief and scripture that God created the world as good, then we do need to take that seriously. Uh, and it's also the case that in a social milieu, the Catholic Church has noticed that the worst effects of environmental degradations are often borne by those who are the most vulnerable, whether people who are poor or young or elderly, um, and those are the ones who have done the least to contribute to the problem. So I, I really think it's worth noting that while we're talking about climate apocalypticism of many different sorts, the Catholic Church, and especially Pope Francis, have been at the visible forefront, they're not the only ones saying this, but they've been at the visible forefront of people saying, you know, sure, there are these narratives in these biblical stories. There are these ideas about apocalypse and deluge, but science matters and human understanding 
of the created world and of human responsibility. And the procedures of science tell us a lot about what we need to do to make this a more habitable and just place. And, and so, Henry, we've got about uh, three minutes left. And so, I mean, now we're sort of back to how do we communicate about this? How do we as journalists communicate about this? And, I mean, we can't understress how dire the emergency is. On the other hand, um, you don't want it to turn into some James Watt-like scenario that would be played out as, screw it, your grandchildren are going to be inhabiting a Mad Max movie. Too bad. We couldn't do anything about it, right? I mean, there's tons of stuff that we need to start talking about in this connection. Right. And, uh, you know, for all that uh, I, I tend to complain about people uh, shouting climate change all the time in response to these events, it's actually a good idea for society to be talking about climate change because it's here, it's happening, and it's, it's, uh, it's you know, the impact's already being felt and it's going to be felt even worse. So, so uh, you know, people say, well, now's, you know, maybe now's not the time to talk about it. Uh, let's deal with the, the injured and the homeless and stuff. But in fact, let's start Let's make this as a you know an opportunity to talk about what's going on, uh, and to uh, and to get the facts out. Just to get you know make sure everybody understands what's happening. I mean, science does have an explanation for all these things. It has an explanation for why the climate's changing. It's it's uh, you know there's a very strong consensus about it, and let's just explain it to people. And maybe you shouldn't rebuild right, right where the storm keeps hitting, too. Well, absolutely. And, you know, talk about wildfires. I mean, maybe you shouldn't build houses, like, in the middle of a national forest. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, things that humans do in addition to pumping a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere that are not uh, necessarily a good idea. All right. So we're going to uh, pause uh, here as we head into uh, our final segment, and that's going to be with Liz Jensen, a uh, novelist. Uh, but thanks so much to Henry Fountain. Uh, his book is The Great Quake, How the Biggest Earthquake in North America Changed Our Understanding of the Planet. Uh, and Christiana Zenner Peppard, uh, her book is Just Water, Theology, Ethics, and the Global Water Crisis. I do, I've do. i got about a minute left, so I'm going to just quickly also say one of the people that I miss on a day like this was the novelist Fred File, who actually wrote an ap- apocalyptic novel called Goodman 2020, but who also... He used to say to me that there's a part of the human psyche, not the religious part either, but a part of the human psyche that kind of relishes all these apocalyptic scenarios. I mean, there's a reason why the Road Warrior is a huge hit, right? Um, I mean, some of it is it's a really good action movie, but there's a reason beyond that. And uh, Fred who often um, cast it in connection with a particular Donald Barthelme story, um, used to call it end-of-the-world fun for you and me. There's kind of a sense if we can divorce ourselves or detach ourselves uh, to the notion of some kind of global collapse, then it's kind of fun to think about, (laughs) which is a horrible thing to say, but I I think there really is some truth. There's some part of us that relishes all this. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with uh, the novelist Liz Jensen. And here comes the whinings. saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in her hand. And she laid hold on the dragon, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up. 
And the angel's name was Betsy, who was also Kaplan. And whosoever was not found written in the book of Betsy was not booked as a guest on this show and was cast into the lake of fire. And I did open the book of life, which is... Which is... Give me a second here. Wow, the seventh seal on this book is really sticky. I'll get back to it. Amanda Fish does not swim in the lake of fire. The part of Bill Curry was played by Pat Robertson. Our interns are Evan Sobel and Ashley Taylor. On tomorrow's show, a long talk with Kurt Anderson. And now, back to Colin. You know, a, a few weeks ago in September, I was in Sligo, Ireland. Actually, I was in Strand Hill, which is sort of the beach community of Ireland. And I was watching uh, all of these surfers. They're, they're surfing at Strand Hill, um, but they're all wearing wetsuits, even though it's September. I mean, the waters are just freezing there in Strand Hill. And uh, I suppose if I were a science fiction writer trying to imagine some kind of climate-driven, uh, really weird thing that I could write about, I, maybe I could imagine like a tropical storm, like a hurricane <laughs> somehow, or they're coming to Ireland. That would be so weird if that ever happened. I can see that. <laughs> so the other voice you're hearing is that of uh, Liz Jensen, British author of eight novels, most recently uh, two thrillers, The Rapture and The Uninvited, both of them with climate components. Uh, she also teaches creative writing in Copenhagen, which is, I believe, where she is right now. Liz, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, yeah, where I was going is that there's a way in which things that seemed fantastic in August are things we see on the news today. So that would be one of the challenges of someone writing the way you write, right? To imagine the thing that hasn't happened yet. That's right. But actually, I think because things are, are taking uh, such a um, apocalyptic term, to use the term um, in a very sort of broad sense, um, we're all beginning to imagine uh, what might happen. I think if I said to you tomorrow, Colin, that there's going to be a storm of locusts landing where you live, you wouldn't be totally surprised because no. things are becoming so... Uh, the, the, what is called the new normal uh, is something we're getting used to. There's also a problem with that. So if, and if fiction has an identifiable job, and, and in recent years there have been studies that, that suggest that people who read a lot of fiction actually build their capacity for empathy. So as a fiction writer, I mean, once again, I don't think you necessarily would identify that as your job, but it certainly seems to be a byproduct of your job. People think that climate disasters are ha going to happen to someone else, and maybe when we put on the skin of one of your characters, we are the someone else. Yes, I, I think you've, you've absolutely put your finger on it. And by the way, I do see it as my job. I, I, I'm, I can't speak for all writers here, of course, but I think empathy is one of those great drivers. And um, I'm very aware of it when I'm writing my own novels, particularly with climate, where if you walk into a bookstore and you see a table and it's marked climate fiction or cli-fi, a lot of people really don't want to pick up a book from that table because it's a very off-putting subject. It's so big and so terrifying that a lot of people don't want to face it at all. So we have to be quite, we have to deploy some quite fancy footwork. So I want to back up a few sentences in what you just said and get you to say more sure. about it. So yes, obviously there are people who have done their best in a very serious and non-fictional way to warn us about climate change, but that does 
conjure up uh, visions of Al Gore in his cherry picker um, uh, worrying around uh, trying to tell us very earnestly about uh, climate change. And that message reached some ears, but I don't think anybody would call it an entertaining message. So what you're trying to do is a little bit more, uh, you're trying to slip some of these ideas past the defenses of certain people. And to do that, you can't give up on the notion of being entertaining. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you balance those two objectives? So it functions in a way like any other setting, except in the case of climate change, I think climate becomes a character as much as it is a backdrop. And it becomes also, as we can see, a kind of antagonist. Now, you don't normally think of your home as an antagonist, but suddenly we're having to. The way I tackled it in my last novel, The Uninvited, was I went at it through the ghost story. Because I love ghost stories, and I think many of us are very drawn to to the sort of gothic. If I can ask you, Colin, to imagine a haunted house, what would your picture of a haunted house be? Uh, well, I probably have a, a cliched version of a haunted house. Give me, give me the cliche. Give me the cliche. Yeah, a dilapid, dilapidated place that appears to have been drawn by uh, either Charles Adams or Edward Gorey. It's probably <laughs> uh, in a rather shady uh, location, if not uh, downright out in the woods, uh, with yeah. shutters banging in the breeze and cobwebs inside, and uh, and, and creaky doors. There you go. Yes. Yes, that's exactly how predictable I am. Not, not, no, but we all are. We all answer in exactly the same way with the haunted house. We all have an image of a haunted house that is probably comes from Hammer House of Horror and a million other, and Edgar Allan Poe and a million other stories, fairy stories as well. I mean, we have that for a reason. But what I tried to do was think, okay, I'm going to do a ghost story, and the haunted house is going to be the planet. So I'm going to expand the notion of the haunted house, and I'm going to change it radically. So it won't be dark. It won't be in the middle of a forest. It will be brightly lit. It will be full of high tech. It will be swarming with people. It will be all the opposite of our notion of a haunted house. We have here in Denmark a word called hygge. Have you come across the word hygge? Is that the uh, the cuddling thing? The Yeah, yes. it's, it, 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 exactly. It denotes coziness, homeliness, um, well-being in one's community—it's—it's it's, it's a word that covers a lot of, a lot of ground. The, the Germans call it Heimlichkeit. But that notion has an opposite that isn't talked about so much, which is Uhuga or unhomeliness. And I think that's where we are now. Again, going back to the Gothic, uh, if you think of Frankenstein's monster, Frankenstein didn't build that monster to be evil. It wasn't even a monster when he was building it. He was curious and, and he wanted to do good and he taught the monster to read philosophy. And, and, and if you remember, the monster actually cites uh, a lot of beautiful works of philosophy. He didn't intend it to go wrong, just as we didn't intend for our house to turn on us. Mm. Um, it's the house we built and we don't really like it anymore because it's getting very uncomfortable on us. But there's nowhere else to go. There's a way in which writers uh, like yourself are, are also having to grapple with the question of, well, do I tell a, a scientific story that's rooted in the recognizable world or do I weave in something else, some other element? You know, so, And it seems to me more and more writers 
who write about uh, these scenarios uh, are feeling as though, well, no, I really do need somehow or other, maybe because my readers are wired ultimately to, to see some supernatural elements in this. So whether it's you know, N.K. Jemison, you know, whose stuff sort of once again yeah. treads that line between science, magic, religion, uh, uh, other kinds of belief, uh, the kind of writing that uh, that you're doing as well. I mean, even Jeff Vandermeer, I think, you know, with Born has, you know, oh, a much more... very Uruguay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so talk about uncanny. talk about that. Yeah. Talk about that. That that what happens when you decide to say, all right. So there's the scientific problem. Here's this other problem too. Yes. Well, this interestingly, the the the, the or the the um, supernatural isn't, of course, the only way to go. There, there there's a, a Danish academic called um, Gregus Anderson who's listed five categories of climate. Uh, fiction. Um, there's the social breakdown one that we're kind of all familiar with because that's the immediate, most immediate one, if you like, and we've all seen those images and we can all imagine those stories. Um, there's judgment, uh, which is a kind of revenge of, of Gaia mm-hmm. story, a sort of Atlantis and Noah fiction. Uh, there's conspiracy, um, which has gotten, which is what got me writing Clifi in the first place because. Uh, Michael Crichton wrote a novel called State of Fear many years ago, which was actually a, a, a climate change novel in which he posited climate activists as being the bad guys mm-hmm. uh, and climate change being a hoax invented by them. So that got me into such a state of enragement that I wrote my first climate change novel as a result of that. There's also loss of wilderness, um, and I think that's a, a very important element of climate fiction at the moment there's a there's a huge wave of beautiful nature writing going on at the moment and it's very elegiac and i think that that sense of sorrow uh is part of the mourning process there's been quite a lot of discussion about denial um climate change denial being part of a grieving process and framing it in that way has has actually made me um a little bit more tolerant of denialists because I think we've all been there at some stage. Whenever whenever we realize something terrible has happened, like a death or a loss, our first reaction is to say no. And that's very often our loudest reaction. But then come the other phases. So I've come to see denialists as people who are just in that particular phase of the grieving process. Uh, one thing I have to observe is that I think science fiction writers um, over the decades have been amazingly prescient and, and have been amazingly good at imagining some of the moments in which we find ourselves. I, when I was in high school in the 70s, everybody was reading this book by, I think, John Brunner called Stand on Zanzibar. And like 80 percent of that book has come true since then, all in entirely unpleasant ways. And, you know, whether it's Margaret Atwood with, with Oryx and Craig, Octavia Butler in, in, in in one of her books actually has a Trump-like figure whose slogan is Make America Great Again. She, yes, that's, it's in and that is in the, the, the Parable of the Talents. Of the talents. Yeah. Yes, and, and um, actually I'm just reading her at the moment because uh, it, it, it's extraordinary how present she was. And I mean, she was writing this in the 1990s mm. and uh, she, she predicted so much. Uh, of what's happening with climate change at the moment. It's it's quite mind-blowing, actually, uh, what she foresaw. Um, there's also Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, wonderful, vast uh, novel, 
set in 2140, New York 2140 it's called. Um, of course, we're not going to live to, to find out how mm. prescient that was, but I think it, 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 it's probably um, not far off in all sorts of ways. Uh, any, any drowned city story, any city on a shore is, is likely to end up underwater, at least partly underwater, um, yeah. and coming up with, with fascinating solutions to that, as, as happens in the Robinson. Right. So the argument. Yes, I the, think science fiction has been very good at foreseeing um, the things to come. But that is the job of the science fiction writer to exactly do that: to build scenarios, imagine what might happen, how A can lead to B. But let's talk about the other part of this, which is, and you just sort of alluded it, alluded to it with the the way that people adapt within these scenarios. Because if all you did was hand us a book of horrors, um, you know that wouldn't get us very far. It could be argued that Oryx and Crake by the end is not really giving us a lot <laughs> to cling to. But but ultimately, it seems to me one of the other things that the writer has to do is say, okay, well within within all this, here is your humanity, and here are the tools that humanity still has. And, and here maybe is some other ineffable component that we can call hope or faith or, 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 or whatever. Maybe you can, can you say a little bit about how you approach that whole question? Yes. Well, actually, Octavia Butler, again, um, goes, uh, goes into this in a very prescient way. There is, a, I don't know if you remember, there is a, a cult or a religion that, that is founded by the central character, and it's called Earthseed. And uh, their slogan, if you like, or their, their guiding principle is that God is change. Um, and, of course, it, it, that works beautifully because uh, you, you have to believe in change because it's something everyone can believe in because we can see it all around us. Um, with adaptability, I think one of the things that attracts us to stories uh, about climate and, and uh, any kind of um, scenario where people are struggling against the elements is how ingenious can we be? How do we deal with this? How do we solve this? That's why we read, uh, and it's also why we write, to find out uh, what if it were me grappling with this. Um, when it comes to hope, um, of course we have to bake hope into all the stories we write. I worry about hope being there just as a word, Oh, we've always got hope to cling to, but there's always hope. I think that's a con on the next generation. I think you can't talk about hope without doing something practical about it. Well, yes, and I think an awful lot of of fiction of all kinds is often about yeah. the person discovering capacities inside him or herself um, that yes. maybe had not been uh, evident, or, or even the the little girl who's born into one of these horrific Octavia Butler scenarios who turns out yeah. to be able to do something about it, right? Like, I, I can't, I tried to read some of those Justin Cronin books, and they are so incredibly devastatingly hopeless that they're actually making yeah. me sick, you know? Yeah. But, but I yeah. mean, when you give us, I mean, this is such a huge component of fiction all the way through, that someone is born with more capacity than meets the eye. Uh, a person who appears rather ordinary, ordinary can do maybe extraordinary things under the right circumstances. I guess when I say hope, that's kind of what I mean. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit uh, called Paradise Built in Hell, a nonfiction book about all sorts of disasters that have happened, including Hurricane Katrina. And what she points out very, very forcefully, and I think this is so important, is 
is that actually people behave really decently. People behave well. We don't all become cannibals. We don't all shoot and kill each other. Uh, we actually help each other. And people are very altruistic, ordinary people. It's the, it's the elites that panic and want to control and, and round people up and, and order them about. Um, I'm trying at the moment to write a, a new climate book, which is a, what I would call a post-apocalyptic comedy utopia. Uh, <laughs> and that involves actually taking these ordinary people and saying, this could be really good. How can the worst thing turn out to be the best thing? Um, and in my story, it's by, by showing how they, they rise to the challenges that they are faced with. There is a need for a paradigm shift in our thinking because we have never faced anything this big before. So what do you write when you're living in unprecedented times? Um, you can't look back to the stories you've had in the past. Well, you can to some extent, um, but actually we need to think of a way of telling stories differently. Um, and I don't quite know how we do that because, you know, stories have traditionally been about growth and progress and conquest and, you know, all these other things that make us bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but perhaps we've now reached a kind of tipping point where we need to think more about characters being part of the community rather than individuals. You know, there's a very sort of individualistic streak in, uh, in much of Western fiction. So there are all sorts of fascinating ways in which climate fiction can develop to, to reflect the way that we ourselves are changing, particularly the young generation. I, I can see them change before my very eyes. They have a, much, they have a strong sense of a we rather than an I. Don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, I, th I think I have. Uh, and for that young generation listening right now, if you cannot wait to read the post-apocalyptic comedy Utopia, uh, you can. <laughs> Liz Jensen has a website. It's Liz, LizJensen.com. She'll give you regular updates about how long you have to wait. In the meantime, uh, she's got eight other novels, including uh, two. Uh, thrillers in this vein, The Rapture and The Uninvited, which we discussed. She teaches uh, creative writing in Copenhagen. Thank you so much for sparing a little time to talk to us today. Well, thank you.